Hello, hello. Get ready for a journey through time with the Historians podcast, hosted by myself, Derek Mulligan, and my co-historian, Neil Federson-Hall. We invite you into our virtual living room for weekly fireside chats with world-renowned historians and authors. From ancient history to present day, the Historians covers it all with guests who have lived and experienced the stories they share. Join myself and Neil as we whiz back and forth through time, exploring the truth behind historical events that turn out to be way stranger and more exciting than fiction. So grab a cuppa and get ready to be transported to another time and place. Tune in now to join our history-loving community. Here we go. Welcome, historians, to another great episode on a sunny bank holiday Monday here in uh, the land of Era. Not often we get a lot of sunshine, so soak it up while you can, anybody that is in Ireland. Today, though, well worth a listen. Do we have a very eminent person, I will say, who's done an awful lot of work around the world, continues to do an awful lot of work around the world to fight corruption. A lot of eco difficulties that we're experiencing as well in how things get packaged up with very euphemistic names that don't really relate to what's actually going on to the planet. So I'd be very interested to talk to Mr. Patrick Alley about all these things. Uh, he heads up an organization called Global Witness. So for those that haven't uh, heard of it, check it out online and see the tremendous work that they do. So on that note, good afternoon, Patrick. Thank you very much for joining us here on The Hipstorians. Yeah, good afternoon to you as well, and thanks for having me. Yeah, no, no. Whereabouts are you uh, today? I'm in the south of England. Okay, so tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, how you came about. I mean, it's not the usual road to a career fighting corruption around the world, is it? It was a, a bit of a, a chat in a local boozer, really. It got the whole thing kicked off, is that right? Yeah, that's right. Um, I, I was in. I worked in the construction industry in in the the late nineteen eighties, which was a job I, I I didn't really love, and I had become increasingly interested in the environment, looking at you know the Greenpeace activists shooting around the ocean in their small boats, and thinking, oh, I'd like to do a bit of that. Um, unsurprisingly, Greenpeace weren't you know rushing to hire someone who had never head around the ocean in a small boat anyway so i i i went off backpacking and, and i ended up volunteering for an environmental organization in the uk called the environmental investigation agency who used investigative techniques to look at things like the endangered species trade ivory trade that kind of thing and and there i mean i, I was just stuffing envelopes pleading for money and um but i met a couple of people there who, who sort of became my best friends still are and we, by complete coincidence, were all really interested in what was going on in Cambodia at that time. And, and as you say, we were, were sitting in the Betsy Trotwood pub off London's Farringdon Road, downing lagers after work, and realised this sort of common bond. And at that time, in the early 90s now, Cambodia was very big news. The United Nations were mounting their biggest ever peacekeeping operation until that time, 21,000 troops on the ground to bring an end to a decades-long civil war between the, the genocidal Khmer Rouge rebel group, um, you know, made famous in the film The Killing Fields, um, and, and the Cambodian government. And we heard rumours, just you know, things reported in the press, that the Khmer Rouge were trading timber with Thailand from Cambodia's rainforests. And we thought, was that 
an environmental issue or is that a human rights issue? And of course, it's both. But no organisation looked at that nexus then and, and very few do now, really. And then we thought, well, you know, if, if you could get information, like, you know, through the investigative techniques that uh, our organisation used, then maybe if you had the information, you could get the border closed, you cut the funding to the war and, and you have peace and the rainforest gets saved. You know, it was all rather simplistic. We thought, why doesn't somebody do it? And then we thought, well, why don't we? So we, with no experience, no money, um, et cetera, we, we decided to pose as European timber buyers arm ourselves with secret cameras, go around the Thai-Cambodia border and document that trade, which is what we did. You know, it took us a while to get any funding to do it, but we did it. We asked the questions and, and we found the Khmer Rouge were earning between 10 to $20 million a month from that trade. And sure enough, that information, when we put it in the right place, got the border closed. So, we, you know, at the end of it, we thought, how on earth did we do that? <laughs> it's just, it wasn't, um, it was, you were completely winging it. But it worked. You know, it could equally not have worked, but it did. And, and so that's what set me off on this career. A backpacking James Bond character, indeed, with <laughs> secret cameras. <laughs> My God, it took a lot of, like, I mean, you know, a lot of cojones, as they say, to, uh, to go and do something like that. I mean, I suppose you were probably innocent to the fact that you could very well have been killed on that escapade, wouldn't you? Yeah, we, we we were obviously aware that the Khmer Rouge were very dangerous, but they were kind of on the Cambodian side of the border and, and we were very strictly keeping to the Thai side. But in hindsight, looking back at some of the places we went, you know, we did go on a, a boat once up the waterways of what we thought was Thailand and turned out to be, we didn't know it at the time, behind Khmer Rouge lines in Cambodia, which would have been a very bad place to have been spotted. But yeah, so we, we were a little bit, naive in those days and interesting you should mention James Bond because when we were posing as timber buyers we thought well, we need to have a uh, a false identity and and in the James Bond books in Fleming's cover name for MI6 was universal export and we thought well, if it's good enough for James Bond it's good enough for us so we had our universal export cards printed up and went around the border with those so we, we approached it with um you know we weren't terribly serious people in that way yeah, fantastic, fantastic stuff, and and, and look where where it's taken you now. And like obviously, you you do have a uh, there's a good lady wife that's obviously supporting you throughout this as well. I'd I'd say she would have many a a nervous night um, whilst you're away. We did our best not to sort of be entirely honest about these things at the time. Fair enough. Um, but there was a time it was a kind of a, a peculiar one where. It, it was there was one evening in Siem Reap, which is where the temples of Angkor Wat are. But in those days, you know, after dark, it's kind of a war zone. And we were with a guy who took us to see the temples, although it was pitch dark. And we missed our call in home. Um, and my colleague Charmian sort of phoned up my wife Breeder and and said, "I had to break this news to you. They've gone missing or something." In fact, we were sort of having a really nice time. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Deforestation still continues in, in Cambodia um, and it gets packaged up with different names that make it sound that the environment is being protected and um, where in fact something like 400,000 rural farmers are moved off the land for deforestation and shipped off to work in, in factories. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, this is one of the problems. I mean, you mentioned in the introduction our, our work on corruption. When we first began, 
we hadn't really thought about corruption. We thought about this link between environmental and human rights abuses. But in fact, behind all of these things, you know, corruption is, is the engine that drives things. And the ruling, the rural, the ruling elite, sorry, in Cambodia um, quickly started treating the country like a personal bank account and selling off land and, and, and its forests to their cronies and to themselves to carry out logging and sell the timber and then to plant you know, rubber or palm oil or whatever it might be. And yeah, and the result of that is, you know, people often get, you know, the, the idea that forests are just, you know, environmental, you know, gems. They, they, they have people living in them. People have always lived in them. People have depended on them. Uh, and they're kicked out. And when you have corruption, they have no agency the first they know that a problem is is going to happen is when a bulldozer shows up on the, on the side of their village and starts you know going through their fields or indeed their houses and they have you know at, at best so they're going to get forcibly relocated which is you know under the international criminal court a crime against humanity and at worst they could get killed and around um you know 200 people a year minimum figure are killed um for trying to defend their land uh, and, and a former colleague of ours from Cambodia was the person who started started us checking out those numbers because he was assassinated in 2012 for, for trying to protect the forest so yeah you know the, the the elite gets rich ever more autocratic the forest gets destroyed and the people get disinherited from their their rightful heritage so there's not really winners in that situation yeah, it must be hard to keep up the fight, you know, after after 25 years, because you come up against, you know, everything obviously is, is a battle. Um, and it must feel quite lonely at times that, you know, you're, you're you know, one voice um, and the crowd necessarily isn't isn't behind you. I mean, there's lots of people that will be listening to this today that may never have a heard of Global Witness or have any interest in the environment and how it might affect our children's lives in the future or whatnot and aren't really prepared to get out and uh, do something about it. You know, that's where I say that just takes a, a, a amazing courage. But does it does it feel lonely at times? Is, is it hard to, to keep the pressure on? I mean, it, it does at times. I think that we and, and our colleagues in other organisations you know, we win a few battles um, and those keep you going. And whether or not we are, we're winning the war is another matter. And in the case of forests, we're not, quite frankly. And you know, one of the things that makes me mad really is, you know, sort of, do people care about the environment? Do they not? Regardless of what they think, they're living in it. You know, we're not a separate thing. We're not living in this bubble that isn't the environment. We're in it. We will all be affected by it. We are being affected by it. And so I think people should be taking action um and it doesn't have to be they don't have to run off and do what we did but anything they can do they should do but one of the things that that we've worked on with many other organizations and, and i think it's a real plus a real positive story is that there's a, a new law in europe called the corporate sustainability due diligence directive and that rolls off the tongue doesn't it and essentially that will prevent environmental and human rights harms entering the eu supply chain put it that another way anyone who wants to import goods into europe if there's deforestation involved they can't so you know it's slightly more complicated than that similarly and we're not one on this battle yet um you know finance that finances deforestation because the banking and investment sector have a massive role to play there 
we hope that that will eventually be captured under that same law. And it would relate to other things, you know, any anything you eat, basically, anything you buy, anything, you, you know, whatever you're bringing into Europe will have to abide by this law. And that's a real positive. And that shows that even if individuals aren't prepared to do something, if the EU is, then the individuals de facto are caught by it anyway. Yeah, that's true. That's true. That would give uh, some, some encouragement indeed. And bringing it closer to, to home, the city of London, which... Uh, I know most people don't really know what the city of London is as such. They just think it's a, the centre of the city, uh, in fact, in some, in some case. But it's really, it's been around since uh, 1100 and it's its own sovereign state, effectively. And you've done some work on around this, have you? Yeah, I mean, we, we've we've looked at the city of London a lot in, in different areas. Um, and, you know, the, the role of the city is you know it spreads across our work you know i think we're talking about deforestation one of the biggest financiers of deforestation are the banks of the city of london responsible for billions and billions and billions of dollars worth of investment into you know agribusiness for example which is destroying the amazon or or other areas but the other side of it is and this is something i always try and say when we're talking about corruption is, is people very often have a vision of corruption being done in some you know dusty tropical country far far away it's a globalized industry and so whereas some politician might be on the take and let's face it the uk isn't really immune to that one right now as we know um but uh, even if there's some politician on the take where's the money coming from you know it's coming through a bank account and it's coming from foreign investors and so i really regard you know like the rest of globalization corruption is also globalized and different places have different roles to play and the city of london has a massive role to play in the fueling of corruption it's the it's the big laundromat of the world uh, for lots lots of you can get into drugs and all that as well it's, it's, it's the same thing and, and you know money cause shots for the, for the most part and all these things uh, and like you say there's a ruling elite that uh, remain untouchable in, in large part there was two journalists in the amazon Murdered. What were their names? Can I, do you remember? I, I forget their names Dom, now. Off the top. Dom Phillips and Bruno Pereira. Right. Yeah. Okay. And they're investigative journalists. Um, you know, no different to yourself, trying to expose a, a story, and uh, disappeared. Um, and and they're gone. And uh, you're trying to do work on that, obviously, to highlight that fact. But it, it just goes to show you, like, I, I I can see this quite a lot around the world in the sense of. There's not that many investigative reporters anymore, number one, because the media has just become, you know, click and paste uh, media. Everyone just share, shares a simple story. Investigative journalists are taking huge risks in trying to expose, you know, all, all these various different things. I mean, even, you know, separate matter to yourself, but the, the Pegasus software that can infect phones. I mean, you know, the Israeli army invented all this, but like you know, you're talking about, you know, a recognized obviously sovereign state and you're looking at people trying to, to shut that down or expose it and, and what they come up against and having to, you know, literally have no fingerprints or any sort of prints on your phone in order not to get infected. What I'm trying to get at really is 25 years ago when you started out, 
you know, like you said, you got the, the cards that you printed up uh, to say you were, you know, the timber people. You know, you can't do that anymore. And you've got to look after your own security via, I mean, you're talking to me, obviously, through the Internet. That must be hard to keep up to speed with, is it? Yeah, I mean, it's something that we have been very, very aware of for, for, for decades in our case. You know, depending on where you go, there, there are different levels of danger. And it could be, as you say, you know, me having a careless conversation on the phone or something with somebody and, and, and an, un, an unwanted listener picks it up. So you've got to be careful of that. But when we're actually operating in countries where there's a physical risk you know we, we have very strict protocols we go through we get professional security advice which we are you know very very conscious of and it's a sad fact now that you know we talked about you know dom phillips and bruno Pereira. they they paid the ultimate price they were and this is another thing just to bring in here they, they were looking at um illegal fishing in in the state of Pará in brazil and Illegal fishing there is tied up with the narco trade. The narco trade is tied up with the illegal logging trade. This, all of these things go together. So you're dealing with really, really bad people. And, you know, Dom, I didn't know him personally. I, I, I know people who, who did. You know, he was an extremely experienced professional journalist. Uh, Bruno Pereira was, in fact, not a journalist. He worked for the uh, Indigenous Peoples Agency in Brazil, FUNAI. Um, and so, of course, he was you know, really, really experienced. He knew the country like the back of his hand. But th- those things are no guarantee. And if you're rubbing up against the wrong people, yeah, it, it can be extremely dangerous. And so there are no guarantees. Yeah, it's just something that, you know, people who do that job have to have to live with. Then when you're referring to states becoming more and more autocratic, I mean, the, the very bad people are, we're, we're talking about, are they the likes of the drug dealers that don a suit and then obviously get swept up into the political elite? Or is it the political or the politicos going bad because of the attraction and lure of money? In most cases, yeah, what I'd, does it appear to be? Yeah, the, the very bad people. Yeah, I, I, well, when, when I wrote, the book of that name i was trying to capture the whole whole gamut really and sometimes the bad people will be a dictator in some country who you know like president obiang in equatorial guinea or, or people like him who just you know rob their people um you know make billions and billions of dollars for themselves while their people are living on like you know a dollar 50 a day so there's that but what you know, so that's one aspect of it. You get warlords who we've also followed. You know, the Khmer Rouge was one, Charles Taylor in Liberia was another. But then this, what I call the pinstripe army, um, the the lawyers, the accountants, the PR companies, the company formation agents who make it all possible. You know, if someone is doing a corrupt deal, if someone wants to rob a country, so you've got some dictator who wants to, you know, use the oil wealth of the country to, you know, put it in his own bank account or her own bank account, then they need a whole army of fixes. And those fixes, again, very often are in places like London. You know, we, the organizations, investigative organizations like us or investigative journalists face what they call slap suits, strategic litigation suits, basically to shut us up. But regardless of whether we're right or wrong, you get some really rich person who wants to shut you up through the courts. They'll try. And, you know, they, they can throw... You know, the Abramoviches of this world can throw millions and millions at it and we can't. But that's that's the environment we also have to live in. But so those people, you know, the enablers, the pinstripe army are a real problem. 
and their people, you know, the, the, the lawyers amongst them say, oh, well, we're just, you know, operating within the law. Well, kind of. But if you know or you have reason to suspect that the person you're representing isn't, and we're not talking about criminal law where everyone has a right to defence, we're talking about civil law. Do you really want to take on someone who, you know, two-minute Google search would tell you is a gangster? Really? Well, they do because they get paid for it. I must say, Patrick, like you, you, you know, for the type of work that you do, uh, you know, you're, you're fighting on one side of the corruption, then you've also got to watch your back on whether you're going to be sued. So probably at any given day, you've got something going on in a court somewhere. You look quite them. So it's uh, you, <laughs> you obviously wear this very well, and uh, you know, like more more power to you. You know, because it must it must be hard hard work. You're under attack as much as you're trying to go after people. You're very much under attack yourself. I, I, it, I've had my moments. I think there are people who are a lot more under attack than I am. And I think, you know, the, the indigenous peoples in the Amazon or in the Philippines or in many other countries who work in, who are, you know, daily risking, you know, the, the, the risk of murder, they're in a completely different place than I am. You know, I, I live in, you know, in the, in, I live in Europe. Um, well, I used to live in Europe. <laughs> um, and it's, yeah, there, there are risks, there are threats. I actually enjoy what I do. Um, I enjoy annoying bad people. There's a positive pleasure in it. I probably shouldn't say that. So I, I, that's probably, if, if, I'm, if I'm remotely Zen, that's probably where that comes from. I'll probably, um, my bubble might be punctured one day, but until it is. <laughs> <laughs> you'll, you'll keep going, keep going. You know, and on that note of keeping going, what's latest on the agenda? I mean, there's a new, I suppose, the, maybe the, the new thing that's been highlighted would be deep sea mining. Yes, we're, we're not actually working on that at the moment. It's not our speciality. But yeah, I, 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 you know, I know a little bit about it. Um, and there are some very good organizations working on it, not least, you know, the likes of Greenpeace. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a real nightmare because what we have now is obviously the need to have an energy transition away from fossil fuels to renewables. Two of the most critical minerals for that that you'll find in every you know car battery uh, are, are cobalt and lithium. Two thirds of the world's cobalt around about is in the Democratic Republic of Congo, um, and everybody's after it, but they're finding it on the seabed. And even the companies that are doing it, um, not, and not to mention the scientific community, are saying we do not know what the environmental impacts of that will be. We simply do not know because we're talking about the deep seabed where, you know, I, I couldn't give you the figures, but there are, you know, thousands of new species as yet undiscovered, an area that humankind knows very little about. And we're, we're going to go and mine it. I mean, it's just crazy. You know, we should be um, employing the, the precautionary principle. If you don't know what it's going to do, don't do it. Um, it's, it's just a madness. And there's a lot of shysters, I think, in that business. And, and it brings about that bigger argument about, you know, how important is money? We, we, can, we can keep on exploiting the world like we are, and we will all pay for it. Humanity will pay for it. The planet will carry on. Um, in a very different way. But, you know, humanity probably won't. Um, that's kind of the, the path we're on. So in the end, what we need to do is, you know, utilise the resources we have got very wisely. But we do need to change the way we live. We can't just keep on exploiting and exploiting. You know, and if you look at the economic model that we have, G, you know, GDP, which is based on, you know, unlimited growth, you know, with 4% this year, 4%, whatever, 
in a finite world. No one's making more minerals, <laughs> you know. So it, it runs out sometime. It's just a question of when. Yeah, that's it. The nail exactly on on the head, indeed. And and, and that's how you know that is what can could make you quite unpopular uh, amongst your peers in that you're trying to essentially change people's lifestyles. But we do have to take responsibility for ourselves and, and how we interact uh, with with the world. You know, I was a, an estate agent for my troubles up until four weeks ago, uh, and uh, now I'm trying to get Zen. I'm living in a lovely Leitrim in the middle of Ireland and a nice uh, restored. Uh, farmhouse and i'm going okay you know i'd rather do this type of thing although it doesn't pay the bills yet but uh I, i've certainly jumped out of that kind of uh rat race and, and the, that thing of you know forever growth it, it, you're right it doesn't exist and, and there will be a collapse and a reckoning point at, at some point in the future whether it's our generation or the next but somebody's somebody's going to get it all right have you found anything has changed or are the people that you're finding is it just the the people and characters keep changing, but the same exploitation continues. Would that be a story? I think the the same, it's not even the same exploitation. I think it's an increasing exploitation. We are consuming, obviously, obviously the human race is expanding um, apart from anything else. But, you know, probably only a third of the human race are actually consuming more or two thirds, you know, they need to consume more. They're, they're in a very different economic situation than the rest of us, i.e. very poor. Um, and so there's a double whammy going on really in that the richest people in the world of which we number uh, two of them, um, you know, we, we, we're consuming ever, ever more um, at a time when we should be consuming less and allowing other people to catch up a little bit and get, you know, decent health service, decent education, decent infrastructure, which they, they may not have. Um, whereas we are, you know, flying off wherever just for the weekend because it's cheap or, or buying you know, an ever bigger car or, or whatever. And, and I think we really need to think about that. And it's easy to say, but if you look at electric cars as an example, great you know one day that may be the answer but actually should we all have a car should there not be some kind of you know pool transport system i don't know those are not my areas of expertise but i think we, we need to be thinking about those things um because we, we simply can't carry on as we are it is unsustainable that's an overused word but it's a very real one and, and whereas many of the listeners may may or may not be sympathetic to that their kids probably are and their kids will be and that's the thing that, you know, for the m most of us, we don't understand anything about what's inside, what we consume like that. We don't consider the fact that, you know, somebody in you know, Congo has been exploited just so you can drive your, your new Tesla or, or whatever. There's a new company out now, Polestar, I saw there, there as well. But um, a tremendous, uh, a, a tremendous fight. That you had. And it's all the team still intact since day one, largely. No, no, it's, it's, it's changed over the years. I and mean, yeah. we've been going 30 years. So some of them have even retired, you know. Um, right, okay. <laughs> but no, the we, we we've um, what I what I think is rather nice actually is you know when we started off when we met my my colleague Simon Sharman and myself in the Environmental Investigation Agency, we were one of a number of you know groups of people who split off and, and did our own thing, and, and we're seeing the same at Global Witness people you know, having a kind of a variant idea and, and doing something which is great, you know, complimentary stuff. Um, we still have some of our people who've been with us 20 years or more. Um, but now others have sort of gone off and filled the, the wider environment. But that I regard that, you know, 
not always I, I miss people who go, but I think it's great that if they sort of take on something new and adding to to what's going on, and, and which, which speaks to another thing really, which is, you know, if we look at the corruption issue, when we started working on that, there were really kind of two organisations doing it, and now there are lots. That's good. You know, there are more people getting into this world. Listeners, it's been great talking to Patrick. And we have referred to the book during the podcast. It is called Very Bad People. It does read a little bit like a a spy novel and will definitely open your eyes to the world that uh, you live in with us uh, and hopefully maybe change some of the ideas that we have around how we interact with this wonderful world. But uh, Patrick, thank you so much. And I really wish you uh, the very best. And I hope you continue in your long career fighting uh, injustices and hopefully almost like the Cape Crusader of, uh, of, of the environment. But uh, brilliant, brilliant work that, that you do. Um, again, thank you. Well, thank you for having me. Well, historians, yeah, it's real honour and pleasure to talk with Patrick. His work is fantastic. So you'll find him on TED Talks as well. Um, These are issues that I've only come to learn about really in, in recent times. I do feel strongly enough about them. Um, I do think that we, you know, owe it to, you know, the kids and obviously future generations to do, you know, our little bit uh, to slow the exploitation um, of what finite resources, as Patrick described, that we we do have on this planet. But anyhow, that's uh, that's, that's for another day. It's slightly off topic. Um, in the end, we still talked about history and things, his experiences uh, fighting corruption over the last 30 years. And that's it for today, folks. Uh, I'm back out to enjoy the sunshine. Hope you are too. And we will see you again next week. Take care. I would like to take just a moment to thank all the Hipstorian followers for your support during the first five months of the show both myself and Neil are delighted that so many of you are enjoying what we do here we plan to continue and expand our efforts into the future as you can probably appreciate it does cost to produce the show and we have been funding this ourselves there is a link within the episode where you can make a one-time one euro enjoyment donation very much welcome uh, any donations at all in fact we will be offering a paid subscription tier more on that later and anyhow if uh, you don't have it don't worry keep tuning in we'll be here